This is Ordinary Acts, conversations about how to pursue positive change in our city and the everyday stuff of life. I'm Emily, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Acts podcast sponsors, Broadcat. Founder and CEO Ricardo Pellephone and Amy Blanchard, the Director of External Affairs, join us today to talk about what it's like running a business as a husband and wife, how they're tackling a new approach at corporate compliance, and what it means to be recovering lawyers. I hope you enjoy the conversation that we have today and hear their recommendation of where to grab a beer and a club. Awesome. Okay, guys. Well, this is Emily, and today we are here with the one and only Broadcat. Um, and I tried saying Broadcat podcast 10 times fast and never got it right. And so uh, Ricardo and Amy here told me that they at one point played with the idea of a Broadcat podcast, which um, I think is what we should call today's episode, the Broadcat podcast. So um, would love for y'all just to tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, introduce yourself, tell us where you're from. Um, yeah. Who are you? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm Ricardo um, uh, I am joined by my wife, uh, Amy. Um, we run a company here in Dallas together called Broadcat. Um, uh, we are ex-lawyers by background. It's probably the easy... Or recovering Recovering lawyers. or, yeah, former, depending. Uh, that that always seems to delight lawyers when you mm-hmm. say that. Um, there's <laughs> like this a lot... It, it's funny uh, how the legal community works. Um so we um, so we're a company here in Dallas that focuses on really like legal design. Um, so what we do specifically, we work with very large organizations on taking what would ordinarily be like a half hour compliance training and distilling it down to like this is actually what you need to know on one piece of paper as like a checklist. Um, and so we license the, that type of material to companies all over the world. Um, I am so I'll do I'll do me. Um, so I am originally from the Upper Midwest. So uh, mostly from Michigan, but kind of like from some other states up there as well. We moved around a lot. Um, I've been in and out of Dallas since 2006. Um, uh, And so that's where Amy and I met. Then we lived abroad and then in California. And then we started the company. We came back here Um, uh, and met as attorneys, uh, started the company about six years ago. I feel like that's a good launch point for you. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, um, my name is Amy Blanchard, um, or Amy Blanchard Pelophone, depending on how you know me. I was born and raised in Texas with a brief stint in Missouri. Um, uh, went to law school and came back to Texas when my parents moved here. They moved to Murphy outside of Plano. Um, and like Ricardo said, we met when we were practicing at the same firm, um, got married, I left, and then kind of been on an adventure ever since. So we've been married 11 years this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a dog. Her name is Mrs. Frank Pickles. She is also 11. Yeah. Um, and she is a schnoodle. So she's a miniature schnauzer and poodle mix. And this year we had the excitement of her developing diabetes and going blind and getting her eyes removed. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. She's a resilient little dog, so she's doing really well now. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen a dog that's had its eyes removed, but it's wild. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, and, like, how they adapt, and they just kind of, like, bump into stuff, and you're like, it's going to be okay, you know? Yeah. She's handled it really well. It's actually been – so she was, you know, had diabetes and then got glaucoma, and so – didn't really realize it, it all happened very, very quickly. I'd say we went from a month of no, for, it was about a month from knowing she had glaucoma to having her eyes removed. Um, and despite the fact that it's a very weird and kind of traumatic thing to see your dog have no eyes anymore, 
Um, uh, personality has really come back. Um, you just kind of don't get the, the, you know, it's something with a glaucoma that builds up pressure. You don't get the sense that your dog's in pain. Um, but man, like she's, she yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy how much she's herself minus if you look closely, you're like, well, that's weird. <laughs> we got her like some mirror, some mirror, mirrored, uh, like Ray-Ban type sunglasses, which she doesn't love keeping on, but yeah, they look pretty but cool. But she looks very cool. Yeah. So I love that you call yourselves recovering, uh, lawyers. I think that, um, I think that there are a lot of people in Dallas who would identify with, <laughs> with that, that name. Um, so at the end of the last episode, it's funny, Ben uh, called you all lawyers with tattoos. Um, and then Mary Margaret, Mary, <laughs> Mary Margaret called you people who make compliance cool um, and who were able to combine sort of this corporate identity with also being caring. So I feel like that's a pretty good, pretty good starting point. I mean, attorneys with tattoos, right? Yeah, that's incredibly gracious of Mary Margaret and very nice of her to say. So um, the, the corporate compliance is cool thing. I think Ricardo can speak more to that because he's the, the driver of that whole ethos. Um, but yeah, what do you think, Ricardo? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's funny. I think I think a lot of how people identify us is by just like our aesthetics of like how the two of us look. And it's funny because like the game for me for our, our work has... I've never actually tried to focus on making it cool. I've tried to focus on making it invisible. Um, and so like running, going from being, so I was a compliance lawyer. So we met and we were outside, we were outside counsel at the same firm. Then we, about a year and a half into our marriage, we moved to the United Arab Emirates and I worked for um, one of their government vehicles, their government owned companies for a while running their compliance investigations, did the same thing in California, and then started this. And so my background, um, substantively, was investigations and compliance. And um, uh, one of the things, now running the business side of it, it's just like, hey, what business people really want is to like not have to think about too much. Like to be like, hey, I'm, I, am, I am willing to, do, to go along and follow the rules and do the right thing. And, and if I'm not, then you can't really fix that with a compliance program. You just have to get that person out of the, out of the organization. Um, but if I'm willing to go along with this, it's just like, why does it have to be so hard? Like, why does it sit through like an hour long goofy training with where I have to click on stuff for no reason? Um, the, the analogy we use a lot for people is like, uh, like when you have to pay your taxes and you're like, Hey, I, I'm, I'm happy to pay the fair amount that I owe in taxes. Why does it have to be so complicated to know what that is? Like, why can't that be simpler? I, I don't really don't want to be a tax expert or else I would have gone into tax law or gone into accounting or been a CPA. Um, just tell me what I owe. Why is it so complicated? And so a large part of our, our thing has just been like demystifying that for people. Like, here's what it practically means. If someone gives you an invoice, this is what you're looking for. If you see one of these things, the money's probably going somewhere that is not good. And at that point, you don't know where it is, but at least that, that is a more useful thing than, um, you know, having to sit through a half hour course, like e-learning course on it and then figure out what it's supposed to mean. So that's been our driver. I think, I do think a lot of people do identify the brand with like just kind of how we look because this is, it is different than you would typically see in the compliance space. I, I've learned that when I do speaking engagements, I can no longer read the comments because of how often they, they hit on how I look, both pro and con. Because it's very polarizing both ways. So to unpack, um, since this is a podcast and people don't know how you look. I have a mohawk and visible tattoos, including on my hand. Okay, there you go. And then my hair is black and white, so. Yeah. <laughs> 
and tattoos. Yeah. But like probably cooler looking than your average people in compliance is my guess. There's probably, and that's me overgeneralizing. I'm sure that there are plenty of really cool people in compliance, but I tend to think of like government types and suits. And so I'd imagine that like the Mohawk, you know, talking about how you've helped innovate the compliance sector probably is a little different than what people have seen. And like you said, I can imagine that both sides of that, people are probably really like refreshed by that, but then there are also probably people who have never loosened their tie. They're like, wait a second, what does this mean? I mean, we, we realize it's really um, a, a fairly effective filter um, for, uh, you know, and we don't use it for this purpose, but it just turned out, I used to get feedback at the beginning of people, but you do so much better if you wore a suit. And then, like, I used to work in sovereign wealth. Like, I have a lot of suits. But, like, at the end of the day, like, um, I think what we learned is that if you are going to, like, people are looking for something that signifies what you do substantively. And so, like, for us, if, if we come across as, um, if we're trying to do something substantively different, it actually is enormously helpful that you look the part as well. Um, and so, like, that has been a, and that, again, it's not the reason, I just, I like looking this way. Um, but, like, um, it turned out to be just a really effective filter. Like if the fact that I wear like a t-shirt and jeans, like is really offensive to you, you're probably not going to be on board with like changing the way you do all of your substantive work too. Um, and where there's other people, they're very drawn to that, that come to that and say, Hey, look, I think this stuff really needs to change. It's just, I mean, I think my understanding of branding has changed so much over, you know, from being a lawyer to like starting this and really understanding how much it just acts as a signal to like what you're promising people you do. Yeah. And then talking about, I mean, y'all started this, you said six years ago, and then have experienced, I mean, pretty incredible growth and um, growing your team from, I mean, what I imagine what at some point was the two of you to the team that you have today and um, being involved in your community. What was the, I mean, obviously knowing you're in compliance, but what was the catalyst that made y'all look at each other and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to start a compliance company and we're going to call it Broadcat. Because I still, the name is, I'm like, where did Broadcat come from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the latter question's definitely been the most common one I've gotten over the past, past six years. Um, Before Ricardo launches into the story, just like a quick caveat, I actually didn't join the company until the past couple of years. So I don't want to, to take any credit for the incredible growth that happened in the first several. Ricardo was very much started it on his own. I was there as a support mechanism um, in the sense of being the spouse, but this is his baby. So go ahead and tell it was me. And, yeah, it was me and the dog for yeah. a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, at the time, because it's a very visually focused brand, she still had eyes back yeah. um, so. <laughs> um, uh, You have to laugh about that, otherwise, it's kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, you know, look, there's all these like different stories and myths you tell about like why someone starts a company um and uh, you know there, there's some part of it like hey there is a real substantive problem here where um uh, i was so i was an investigator and i'd like fly all over the world solve it like going to look into stuff like people call the hotline about like the employee hotline and um uh, it's like the world's dumbest way to solve problems to have, like pay a lawyer to like jump on a plane to like milan or moscow or something and like go that sounds glamorous the way i just said that it really isn't um like because it's the same day and like it, it's, it's 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 not it's not fun travel there was one day when ricardo called me from the office at 10 a.m and he was like i need for you to pack a bag i need i have a flight to milan at noon <laughs> yeah 
wasn't that glamorous because I yeah. didn't get to go. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and the, the, the routes that you're getting like a couple hours in advance of going are like not fun routes to fly. Um, but at, at any rate, it, it's basically like if, if at the end of the day you do this investigation, you find out there's a bad person in the company, like everyone's happy about that. But it's actually pretty rarely the case. Most often it's like someone messed something up because they just didn't know what they were supposed to do. And so I kind of came to this conclusion that like I was getting burned out on doing investigations and especially because I felt like I was investigating stuff that like, hey, if we've just given like this person like a checklist, like, hey, look for this stuff, we would have saved just an obscene amount of money on legal fees and like outside like counsel and outside like accounting or like like consulting fees. Um, and we would have the problem in the first place. And so that was the type of stuff I started making. That's the substantive piece of it. I think there's also like, I think entrepreneurship is like deeply like a personality thing as well. And I think there's also just part of it that's like, I just had this feeling that like, I just want to do my own thing. Um, and at the time that I started it, like, or at the time I was really working, like starting it, we were um, still in California. And like, I, you know, you just really, it's very much a culture there um, of like, and we're in Southern California, but still even there, there's very much this culture of entrepreneurship. Um, the UAE, it's very entrepreneurial as well. So I was just kind of soaking in that and wanted to just like try my own thing. Um, the boss I'd had at the time, my last, my last like actual job was like just super supportive of it. Um, Cause I'd gone to her and been like, Hey, I have this idea. Can I like try this out as a side hustle for like six months? And like at the end of six months, I'll either quit or I will, you know, I'll roll it up um, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop doing it. But like, I just want to try it. And she was like just very gracious and supportive of that. I ended up quitting like two months into that period. Um, but it was just, I, you know, it was having that support to, to really be able to try something out. Um, and I, but I, I really do think a large part of it is just like you have this drive that you, you feel like you want to create something, like create your own thing. Um, and that's not for everyone. Um, but I just think if you have that itch, like it is, that it, that is something to pay attention to and figure out how, how to scratch it. I think that's awesome. And then Amy, you came on a couple years in and you're primarily working with external partners, right? So what is, what is your role look like within Broadcap? So it's, um, I think initially we were, so background. When I, when we moved to the Middle East, um, I had a difficult time transitioning from litigation, which is what I practiced, um, to a completely different jurisdiction and um, style of government and and court system. So um, we used that opportunity um, to kind of try things out. And I'd always been interested in movies and they had a movie studio there. And so I interned for a couple months and they ended up hiring me as legal counsel and then transitioned me into strategy. Once they transitioned to me into strategy, I was like, oh, this stuff is pretty nice. Um, and decided not to do uh, practice law anymore. Um, and so was very involved with that. So we moved back to Cal- or back to the States in California. Um, I ended up getting back into a law firm, but in a different role in business development and marketing. So when I joined Broadcat, um, my, my main focus is marketing um, and also working with external partners. So whether that's different content creators that we can partner with or different distributors. Um, the focus is just making sure that Broadcat is very much um, present in the industry and is known as a thought leader. Um, and so that's easy to do because Ricardo has all kinds of thoughts that, um, that we put out there. <laughs> and they tend to be a little bit different than what the industry is used to. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically what my role is. I, 
because we had started, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but because we had started at the same firm um, and had worked together at that firm on the same case um, for like 2,400 hours, um, billable hours, um, that we got to know each other really well, but we also got to know that maybe it wasn't the best thing for us to work together at that time. And so um, I knew that I wasn't being the wife that I wanted to be to Ricardo. And so I ended up leaving and he stayed. And then, then we ended up kind of transitioning to different roles. Um, but that made me very hesitant to working with Ricardo in the future. Um, one of the blessings was that Ricardo joined or Brockhead as part of Ricardo, I guess, maybe it's the vice versa, mm. Ricardo as part of Brockhead, joined um, a Christian business accelerator called Praxis, um, which I think ACT has done, but on the nonprofit side. Um, Reed did that a while ago. And, um, and actually, Reed was the one who recommended yeah, it. Yeah, so I, I got into it because Reed told me about it. Yeah. Um, but one of the freeing things about that is that there were several husband-wife teams that were working on for-profit ventures. And so Ricardo got a chance to sort of talk to them about what it was like and what sort of hiccups there were. Um, at the same time, Ricardo and I were um, uh, leaders in um, a, a marriage ministry at our church, Park City's Presbyterian. Um, it's called Reengage, And so we were able to lead small groups as part of that. And we felt like our marriage, or at least our communication skills, had like improved significantly yeah. to the point where we kind of felt like we're, that God was sort of calling us into this next stage. And so we took a big leap of faith and had me quit my job, which was a steady paycheck, an excellent job. I had a great boss, worked with very smart people um, to kind of go on this new sort of adventure together. And uh, praise God, it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. The, the one thing I'd add to that that also was a, a trigger for you quitting too was we went through, and just to give this organization a shout out too, um, we went through a um, journey of generosity mm. put on by Generous Giving. Um, so, and I think that for us was really powerful because, um, I had actually never thought about why I was saving money before. Like it was like, okay, so we do regular giving, like we, you know, spend less money than we're saving. And I think that really helped us reframe it around, like, to just really think about like, what is our finish line? Like, what is enough money? And like, also like, what, like, why are, why are we doing this? And I just nev never really thought about those things before. Um, so it caused us to start really having these conversations internally. We were able to speak with an advisor of ours and we were like, oh, okay, like, what are we, why, why are we not doing this? Like, that we had, we, Amy was, Amy was, BOA was providing like a stable income to us that we were like, we actually don't really need that right now. And so like, why, why are we, why are we living like this? So um, I think that was, you know, I, I'm kind of, kind of here is talking about these different organizations. They all kind of operate in this like same ecosystem and like the different things that they provide, like that, that view have being able to like think about wealth that way, I think was like enormously helpful mm -hmm. in allowing us to, to just take different risks. Um, you know, not like if, if I think for, especially as lawyers, um, just the business side of it was just like, man, totally new to us when we started this. Like, it's like so funny looking back at like how I ran the company in the first few years because I had absolutely no concept of what I was doing and that flowed through to money as well. And so like that, that positioned us to be like, we can do this and this is awesome. And so we're able to take the leap and do it. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So was this journey with Praxis and Generous Giving happening around the same time? This episode is sponsored by Broadcat. They make compliance training that prosecutors look for. No more chasing compliance training trends that keep getting more expensive and complex. Broadcat makes customizable, practical, visual tools that teach your employees how to do their jobs compliantly. 
Find out what the DOJ looks for in its compliance training by visiting thebroadcat.com or just Google Broadcat. That's broadcast without the S to download a detailed interview with the Department of Justice former compliance expert. And if you're listening and wondering how you can support this show and Axe work, please consider becoming a justice partner. Not only will you receive a monthly newsletter, book resources, and other special connection opportunities with others in the justice partner community, but you'll help continue our work to make neighborhood safety a normal reality for everyone. Sign up today at actforjustice.org. So Praxis is like, I, we found, we initially found out about generous giving through Praxis. So like that Praxis Labs, the accelerator is over like a six month period, I think. Um, and at one of the sessions they had like, you know, we were, I forget, I think we maybe were in San Francisco for that. They had like some people come and tell us about that. But like, you know, start thinking about like, what, what do you do with money? Like the opposite of um, consumption is not savings. It's like generosity. And so, um, and then our church PCPC was basically offering sessions like during generosity, like weekend sessions and small groups. Yes. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's just a place to go talk about that in a, in a, and it's it's a it's kind of a difficult conversation to have, um, you know. And so it was a cool. It's just a, a nice, like non-judgmental. Like there's no financial ask. It's just like, hey, like let's talk about like how you can really celebrate generosity and like what would that look like in your life. Um, so that happened, I think, maybe like at the tail end of Praxis. I think so, yeah. Um, but it was still during it because the very last Praxis event, that's when you announced that you were quitting your job. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it would have been it would have been concurrent, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Wow. Really cool to see. I mean, like you mentioned, Reed, our founder, did um, the nonprofit kind of track for Praxis a couple of years yeah. ago. And um, I mean, we we use a lot of their resources, the redemptive nonprofit, just thinking about kind of how we're thinking about interacting with people um, on all levels of our kind of yeah. stakeholder experience, whether that's a resident in a neighborhood that we are getting to know and then hopefully signing on as a client, whether that's a donor or a corporate partner or a church partner, what is what does that kind of redemptive framework look like? And yeah. so I think, I mean, we've benefited for sure from Praxis and think it's an awesome program and then have gotten to know generous giving as well. And just think, like you said, I mean, in America, I think specifically there's a success-driven culture, right? And what, what success looks like um, is really different for a lot of people and what does saving look like and what does planning for your future look like and what's based out of fear and what's based out of, I think, truth. And as Christians, I think we're called to, to live that out a little bit differently. So it's really sweet to hear how kind of all of these little pieces, your church, PCPC, generous giving, uh, praxis, just really cool to see how the Lord was working, kind of bouncing around throughout all those different things. And Amy, like you were saying, addressing some of those, you know, a husband and wife working together. I love my husband. We have already said it. We, we do not know that we that we could ever work together. And I think that that's a really real thing that husbands and wives who want to start something have to have to acknowledge. And so, just seeing the Lord kind of address those things is really cool. Yeah, it's a it's a understandable and very like practical and real concern um, if you're going to take a big step um, and, and start something with a spouse. Um, you know, I'd be. I think we'd both be lying if we said it's been like sunshine and rainbows every day. Like, like most days. Most days. <laughs> um, but we had to put like, we had to develop like really sort of practical like strategies and tactics as to how to sort of handle things. And like, you know, 
you know, you can feel the Holy Spirit like on you in a lot of ways, but um, it's like you have to communicate almost excessively. Yeah, and like you, and there's a high level of like meta communication you have to have as to like, I am saying this right now as husband and not CEO, mm-hmm. and she's saying it right now as wife and not employer or whatever. And and the additional layer for us was that. We, we didn't start it together. Amy came in three, four years into the journey. Sure. And so I was used to just being like, I do whatever I want because I don't have to like. And, and so it was just, it was a, and then having that with the employees too, who all were like super gracious and amazing about mm-hmm. it. Being like, oh, by the way, my wife's joining now. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> it, it's happening, right? So Y'all like, got that's, no vote on this, that, but hey. That's a heck of a thing to like, if, if you've been used to just dealing with me, and then someone like, oh, by the way, my wife's joining in a senior role. That, that that's a different thing too, because um, then now you're a, what you signed up for and is not not is is changing, um, and that that was a change to navigate with them as well, which went really it went really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like, well, if, like if if you love communicating, it is very feasible to do. Um, if if that is not a strong point, it is ooh, I don't know how you do it. Yeah, I mean the transparency is something too because it's. You can't hide something at home and or hide have something happen at home and hide it when you get to the office. Like yeah. you kind of have to figure out how to navigate that. And yeah, yeah. So there have been some bumps along the way, but I think I think we're in, I think we've figured it out enough to where we feel comfortable. Um, basically, like leading and shepherding the employees. Um, it's definitely a process that will sanctify you more. Sure. <laughs> Just like. Um, this, the, the mirror that marriage holds up to you um, really will be amplified when you're now seeing that across multiple roles. Mm. Oh, and then if you have to embody those roles in the same house for like a year because of the pandemic. When we're talking to you, we're in Amy's office. My office is down the hallway. We're, we're actually in our office today. Um, but for, you know, the better part of a year and a half, that was all just by our home, which was not set up. I mean, our, our office is in walking distance of our house. We did not set up our house to allow for work from home because we just didn't need to. So that was also just another like try and navigate that where you we I think I think we would just be like when we're at home, this is our like interpersonal signals are like, oh now we're talking as spouses. But then when you're also during the workday and you're working, like that we had to ramp it up even further than what we had already done mm-hmm. when we started working in the office together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that twenty four seven uh togetherness. I think was, yeah, you're like, you're like, we, well, and you, you were already living a version of that more than probably the average married couple, right? Cause you were working together and obviously as a married couple living together and doing life together, but um, you still had your moments that were yours. And I think uh, that's a funny, yeah. The, the mirror of marriage, I think we all, uh, it was very, it was very clean over the last year and a half. Cause we kept having to kind of stare into it and like wipe it off. <laughs> like, wait a second, what's, what's happening here? Okay, well, I'd love to ask a little bit about um, why Dallas. I know that y'all lived in Dallas, obviously worked in Dallas, left, came back. But as, I mean, entrepreneurs moving Broadcat here, getting invested in the city, what is it about Dallas that um, still has you here? What, what do you like about it? It's a great question. So I, I, I originally came here out of law school. Um, and I think for me, it was, it was work at the time. Like I had... Uh, a, Spent like my summertime in uh, at a firm in Atlanta, a firm in Dallas. I, I like the city of Dallas, like kind of the. Um, it, it's a really interesting city in how much it's defined by like concepts and constructs versus like geography, right? So like you see so many cities in the U.S. or just or really anywhere. Like there's a big waterway here, or it's in some mountains. Like there's a very clear reason 
why an obvious reason as to like how they historically developed. And, and there's obviously some some aspect of that in Dallas too, with the, the Trinity as well as just like trade routes. Um, but still, how much of the city's identity is just like ideas. Like you go and you can make something of yourself here. And I think that really appealed to me. Atlanta is a beautiful city, but it's also um, when you when you're at a dinner table and like other people have been in Atlanta for like ten generations or like whatever. I don't know how far you can actually go back, but like um, it's very clear that you're going to be the transplant there. Whereas in Dallas, so many people come here from other parts of the country, um, and that was true, you know, fifteen years ago. Um, and so we then um, moved overseas, moved to California. I think there were a couple of drivers for us to come back. First was just the business climate. It's like fabulous here, right? So like if we, the, the Southern California is beautiful in a lot of ways, but it never really took for us. Like we lived a block from the beach in Huntington Beach and we, ne we went in the ocean zero times in a year and a half, like literally zero times. It just wasn't our thing. And so if you, I mean, if, so if you are, <laughs> no, I totally, I totally get it. I grew up with a pool and I, my husband and I talk about this all the time. I got in my pool maybe once a summer because yeah. it just it wasn't my thing. So I'm laughing because I fully identify with you. Yeah. So we, we have learned that we're not really beach people. Hmm. Um, so like, <laughs> Um, so California is great. Um, if you're not tied to it though, like, and it's like, well, why would, you know, and you're trying to think about starting a business and you don't really need like a whole army of coders or a whole army, you know, there's no geographic reason for you to be there. There's no economic reason for you to be there. Um, Texas, the business climate is like a lot more hospitable. It's a lot easier, um, to get stuff done. And for us, it was, and I think some of it was practical for me too, which is that if you're working with people in, on both coasts, it's a heck of a lot more um, easier to do that from central time than it is from Pacific time. Yeah. Um, because I've definitely learned people on Eastern time still want to talk to you at when they open up, which is like what, six year time. Um, and so you just end up working a lot longer. So it was, um, so there, and then I think we just had your families here. Yeah. So my family lives pretty like about 45 minutes away from where we currently live in Dallas. And yeah. then, um, because we practiced here, we still had a network here. And so, in, especially considering um, corporate compliance is still tied, tied to legal services, it, yeah. was, it made sense for us to be back. Um, and then even when, I think we always knew that we were gonna come back, that Dallas was gonna be a home base. Um, even when we moved to the UAE, um, we just changed our membership at PCPC to out-of-town members. Like we never really exceeded our membership. So I think yeah. there was something in us that always knew we'd kind of like find our way back. Talk a little bit about, um, I mean, you've, you've, you've hinted at this already, right, through your generous giving and even through, I think, Amy, your role with the company, but getting involved in Dallas and you've been members at PCPC for, sounds like, over a decade, um, which is awesome, whether you've been, you know, like you said, kind of members in Dallas or members from afar whenever you lived um, in the UAE. But uh, what are some of the ways that you think as individuals, as Christians, as business owners, um, what are some of the ways that you feel led to be involved in your city and what are some of the things that you like each individually care about and then corporately broadcast cares about just investing in, right? Your time, your resources, your prayers. What are some of those things for the two of you? So corporately, um, we have been involved with y'all for the past three years, I want to say. Um, and part of that is I don't know. I think for me, I view like access to justice as like a core issue. 
um, of that, that, I mean, if, if you're going to, if you're going to be in an environment where rule of law matters, um, rule of law is only meaningful if people can actually access it. And so I think complex, the complexity that you have, and it's kind of like a feature, not a bug of like a common law system, um, is just like, it, it actually reduces access to justice in very significant ways. Um, so I have always really liked what Reed has done. Um, and I remember like the, when I first like talked to Reed about ACT, I think at the time ACT was like him and an assistant. So it was, it was like before we moved over overseas the first time. Um, and so like, um, I think what I've liked about that is how deep that is, or how, how deep the problem is that ACT, ACT targets. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of work that's done that is in the immediate relief space, but I do think there's some really really deep structural stuff that just like undergirds. I think people have been like I think that's become a lot more salient in the past like year or so, um, uh, and I think people have been much more aware of how structural issues impact people. But I re- I've always really liked that Reed was doing this work, you know, going on how like, over two over fifteen years, a decade, a long. Yeah, so officially, officially for twelve years, but I mean, I think from the time of Reed sort of getting going, we're at about the fifteen-year mark of where, at least the thought, the thought of ACT was a reality. Yeah, I think you know that a decade ago, I don't think many people were thinking about that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, at least they were on my radar, right? I'm sure there there are people in different parts, but I think that type of stuff is the type of work that, like, it is, um, you know, it's it's not. It's it's often harder to market and harder to explain to people because it is like okay so we fix this problem and then it's going to waterfall to like three more problems that are a little more obvious and easier to explain. But if you don't have that core root cause thing fixed, those waterfall problems you can just keep throwing money and resources at them, but they're never going to go away. And so I think for us that corporately, this has been probably this has been our key involvement just in, just because that's the thing that I am really motivated by, and I think that's one of the things that. In our own space, like we try and go, uh, it, it, it kind of relates to, I suppose, my origin story for the business where it's like, you know, we came at this as I was solving problems by throwing money and resources through investigating things and, and then just looking upstream to be like, oh, wait, we could just prevent this in the first place. Mm-hmm. That seems better. Um, and so that's always deeply resonated with me. And so corporately, that's been our involvement. Also, the way that ACT does it, so not going in and sort of taking things over, but actually empowering the community to take ownership over the issues and the solutions is something that really appealed to both of us. Yeah. So um, with respect to how we've been kind of doing it on a personal basis, our main involvement is our church, um, yeah. whether that be through the, the marriage ministry or the Extend campaign, where they're kind of opening doors um, throughout the neighborhood and throughout Dallas, partnering, partnering with other churches in town, um, or even like a parish-based ministry. So it's like very geographic, this yeah. is your neighborhood, these are the people that you know, reach out to them to make sure they're okay, especially during the pandemic, I think. Um, Ricardo is a, is a big thinker, um, like big picture thinker, um, has really exciting kind of broad ideas that can change the world. Um, I tend to be a lot more one-on-one and interpersonal. So the combination of the two has been really effective for us and has kind of been useful for us to sort of like match strengths and weaknesses, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. And I think, um, I think one thing that I've learned working with large organizations, running an organization and especially just seeing how like public health has played out through the pandemic is like top-down solutions rarely work. Like it's just, it's very like the ones that are or, or rarely work 
um, on a consistent basis. So the stuff that tends to be really sticky feels usually really bottoms up. Mm -hmm. um, so really, and so that has been something that bottoms up and local. Um, Top-down stuff is just very, very hard to do. Um, and it's just not how humans like working. Um, and so I think, I think when you're seeing, and this kind of relates to how we try and think about things, how I think App does things as well. I realize it sounds like we keep like plugging you on your own podcast. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think especially the past year, I think it's made it just really, really clear that like it's so hard to like top down stuff, like stuff that is going to stick and stuff that's going to work long term is bottoms up, bottom by local community and really originates there as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've seen that. I'm just in total agreement with you on all fronts, right? Um, I'm, like in terms of health, in terms of access to um, the legal system, access to systems in general, like you were saying, Ricardo, I mean, community-based solutions are way more sustainable uh, because it's the people who are experiencing it that are actually making the difference. And I think you're right just in terms of, you know, we've been trying to talk about essentially Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we see ourselves as sort of the base need, right? So if you address safety, which is like that core bottom layer of that hierarchy, then you're able to have all these other things. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's hard to grasp. Like we're doing really tangible work, but I think even with how tangible it is of making what was once an unsafe house um, safe again, it still feels a little heady for some people. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting story to tell for sure. If you've always grown up and felt safe in your environment, it's, you don't really have like a frame for understanding what it would mean to lack that. You know, it, so like, I think that's, it can be difficult to understand what that is just because like, if you have no experience of it, the idea is like, well, you just go get a job, you know, but like, well, you know, there, there's, there's, because there's some really like base of the pyramid stuff going on there that like, you just, you can't even really relate to because you've never experienced it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really real barriers for, for entry and barriers for um, upward mobility that I think you're right. I mean, I never experienced. And so um, I know a lot of our people that are listening to this podcast or maybe that support ACT or hearing about ACT probably have never known what it's like to be unsafe. And the last year and a half with the pandemic is probably the closest they've ever felt to that. Um, yeah. So we've been able to have really interesting conversations. But okay, well, one of my last questions, um, what's something that you have recently learned about Dallas? And then, so my love language is um, food and drink. I, that is like the way to my heart is through like a taco and a margarita. Um, so what's something new that you're learning about Dallas? And then what's your favorite, like go-to staple in your neighborhood for just like, you're going to go out to dinner or out to breakfast? Mm. I'll answer the second one. Yeah. <laughs> Spousal privilege. I don't know what that counts for. Um, so our go-to staple in the neighborhood, there's two in the list. Um, so we live in Uptown in the State Thomas District. Um, if we just want a great place to hang out and have a beer and then have like a pizza, um, State Allen Lounge is fantastic. Consistently good service. The food is always good. During the pandemic, they had an amazing sort of system for ordering and picking up and you can even get drinks like through a garage door. It was great. Um, the other one that we've been doing really consistently is White Rhino Coffee. 
right by our house and um, our dog loves going and getting to hang out with a whole bunch of other folks and their dreams are always good and we love the people that work there. Um, so those are our two uh, recommendations for food and drink, unless you have a different one. No, I think it's solid. Yeah. I think for learning something about Dallas, I think the kind of like microcultures of the city have become a little more obvious to me in the past year. Um, and that might just be because my world feels like it's shrunk in a lot of ways um, into like my immediate neighborhood. But when I go from uh, where we live to, I mean, not even like, I mean, small changes, right? To like Oaklawn. And like, I went, we went there yesterday to get, pick up some food next to like where church was. And I was just like, man, it is like, like everyone here is dressed exactly the same. And I'm very <laughs> clearly not that. I'm wearing like all black and boots. And like everyone else, it was just, I sat next to like everyone there was wearing what I would wear when I was a lawyer, which is like gray slacks, blue button down, talking about closing deals, stuff like that, right? So I think to me it is, I don't know why, but I feel like that thing over the past year to me, like how different the personalities of all the neighborhoods are um, has become more apparent. And I feel like that also becomes a little more apparent when you're talking about like how people respond to the pandemic and specifically like things like mask compliance like how different that looks different parts of the city. Yeah. Um, it's just really fascinating. It doesn't, and it plays out in really surprising ways. Like we just got back from, a, we were in Utah last week for a trip and like we were in, stayed in like one part of like Park City and it was just like there, like everyone was like, everyone was like following whatever the rule was. And then like we went to, we spent one day where we just went to like a really nice, like fancy hotel that was like up on a mountain somewhere. And I was like, no one was doing it. And I was like, it's so it, it's it was just fascinating seeing how it plays out and how things like I, I think it's just made issues of like how wealth and privilege are just made them a lot more salient to me than I think they would have been before. And part of that's just because the pandemic's also in a lot of ways offered the opportunity to slow down mm -hmm. and just be like really see those things that I'm sure were there before. It was just like, oh, I'm so busy. I don't, you know, you, you get you can let busyness be a reason to not really absorb what's going on in the world. Um, and I think that in the past year, it has been more, just more apparent to me, like how different people will in, live it based on just what neighborhood they live in will experience an event like this in radically different ways. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. Well, Ricardo, Amy, thank you all so much for making the time to chat today. It's so fun to hear about um, your individual journeys and then your journeys together as a married couple and as uh, two people running an incredible local business. Um, ACT is so grateful for your support. Um, as y'all have heard over the last couple of episodes, Broadcat is sponsoring our podcast this year um, as one of our corporate partners. And so um, we have the privilege of getting to work alongside them on this uh, new project. So thank you for your commitment to our city, for your commitment to ACT, and um, just grateful for everything that y'all do. It's lovely chatting with you. Emily. Thanks for having us.